Well, good morning. I uh, appreciate very much the opportunity to be with you this morning and to take a look into God's Word and and uh, lead our lead our thoughts and our minds this morning in the study of the love of God. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start there in just a few minutes. But before we do, um, I understand there was a wedding yesterday amongst our church family here. I suspect that today Wade could probably recite the wedding vows that he made yesterday. Do you remember yours if you're married? I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to recite them. I wouldn't want you to do that to me. Um, I'm sure honestly that I could not recite my wedding vows without a little bit of a refresher, but I can certainly remember the gist of the things that we said. And one of the things I remember is that we read from the book of 1 Corinthians in our wedding ceremony. You've probably seen that done in other wedding ceremonies. Perhaps you might have even um, done it at your own. And specifically, we read from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which has sometimes been referred to uh, as the chapter of love in the Bible. We typically look at 1 Corinthians as our instructions as Christians on how we're to love each other, how we're to love others, uh, do we not? We see in that reading how love is so much more than just an emotion, but it's, it's an action as well. And in the context of marriage, when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we look at it as instructions on how two mates are to care for and how to treat each other. In fact, there's a, a great deal of Scripture, uh, in addition to 1 Corinthians, that deals with how we're to love each other. But this morning, it's not really what I want to talk about. I'd like for us to consider the question this morning, um, how does God love? And in a little while, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 13 to help us answer that question. The love of God is a theme that runs through both the Old and New Testaments. There are dozens of scriptures that speak about God's love. Most of us, uh, maybe all of us, are familiar with passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Many of us are familiar with 1 John 4 and verse 8 where we're told that God is love. And while we may be familiar with those passages and might be able to let them roll off of our tongues without a whole lot of thought, I wonder do we really understand the depth of the love of God? What do you think about God's love? And by that I mean the way that God loves. Is God's love something that would eliminate His judgment, for example? Many people like to think about the love of God as being similar to that of a grandpa and his love for his grandchildren. To a lot of grandkids, I mean a lot of grandpas, their grandkids can do do no wrong. What grandpa ever wants to have to discipline his grandchild? 
let somebody else, let the parents take care of that, right? A grandpa's love, we would say, is certainly unconditional. Well, God's love is unconditional too, but that does not eliminate God's judgment. For example, God loved Moses, but he did not allow Moses to enter the promised land after Moses failed to honor God when he struck that rock at Kadesh to bring forth water to the children of Israel. God loved David, but he did not spare David from the loss of his son and and years of problems that were going to follow with his family following David's sin with Bathsheba. So then, how does God love? Well, before we answer that question, let's consider a few other very basic questions that will help us, I think, to understand how God loves. So first off, we need to, we need to confirm if God loves. Does God love? Of course He does. We know that. As we've already answered this question, but surprisingly, there are some uh, in this world who would question God's love. The very fact that there's evil in this world and that bad things often happen to good people and that likewise good things often happen to bad people makes some folks ask, if God really loves us, why does he not enforce justice in this world? Think back, if you can, uh, to September 11th, 2001. It's hard to believe that was 21 years ago now. For many of us, that is one of those days that we'll always remember where we were and what we were doing. I remember on that day, I was in West Texas for work, and I actually had a flight scheduled. I was supposed to fly out of Midland back into Houston that afternoon. Obviously, that didn't happen. I had to get a rental car that day and and drive back home, and I'll tell you, that was a long trip, not just because of the distance, uh, but rather more so the uncertainty of what was going on in the world that day. made it a really long drive home. After all, as Americans, we witnessed evil in this world on that day, didn't we? For the first time in many of our lives, not all of us, there are a few exceptions, maybe even here today, but for the first time in, in many of our lives, this was the first time that we, that we witnessed a ruthless enemy attack and murder thousands of Americans on our own soil. Those who died that day didn't die on a battlefield. They weren't soldiers prepared to go to battle. They were normal people, just like you and me, going about their daily routine of going to work, going to school, traveling on a vacation. So in that respect, they were innocent people whose lives were taken suddenly by forces of evil. But do you remember what happened in the, in the days, the weeks, the months that followed? Do you remember the response, how so many Americans came together in solidarity that I would argue has not happened since then, but came together in solidarity to show our support for each other and our resolve as a nation to prevail over terrorism? Many people experienced, I guess you could say, a spiritual awakening, while others experienced a spiritual destruction. Some questioned the very existence of God. They said, how would a loving God 
allow something like this to happen. Others would question, if God really loves us, why does God not enforce justice in this world? Perhaps you've known those who've experienced the loss in their own life and expressed similar sentiments. And I'll tell you, this is not a new question. It's a question that plagued Solomon thousands of years ago. We've recently studied from Ecclesiastes in our, in our Bible readings in preparation for our classes on Sunday mornings. Look at what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 16. He said, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And in the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes in verse 15, he said, I've seen all things in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in days of righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Solomon says, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair. Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do, when bad things happen to good people, why doesn't God enforce justice in this world? Well, he answers this dilemma by declaring that there is coming a day of judgment. Look at verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 3. He wrote, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there shall be a time for every purpose and for every work. And in the last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. And then Solomon further expressed his confidence that God would bless the one who does his will. This would certainly be an indication that God does, in fact, love. In Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 12, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before Him. So, if we know that God loves, let's now consider another question. Who does God love? That's a simple answer too, isn't it? God loves everybody. Um, Brother D. Young asked me what I was going to talk about this morning, and I, I told him the love of God, and, and uh, I didn't tell him I was, going to, I was actually going to read from this song, but... He led us in number 608, The Love of God. It's a wonderful song, and I appreciate him leading that one. Let's listen to the words of the first verse again. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin point of the language in that song, I believe, is that no one is beyond the reach of God's love. And now, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3, and verse, uh, beginning in verse 14. I'm sorry, I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll get back there in just a moment. But in Ephesians chapter 3, um, Paul speaks of the boundless nature of God's love, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians 3, and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his mercy, of his glory, 
to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 2 Peter 3 in verse 9 is another verse that's familiar to us, that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves us. God loves you. Whether you're high or low, great or small, exceedingly wicked or relatively righteous, God loves you. So that brings us to our next question, which is simply, why? Why on earth does God love us? Particularly when we're sinful, why does God love us? Because he chooses to. We sing another song that's familiar to so many of us, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is what his amazing grace is all about. He loves us in spite of our sins. In spite of the fact that we've lived in disobedience, God still chooses to love us. Titus chapter 3 beginning in verse 3, says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. The love of God says a whole lot about God, very little about us. The very fact that He chooses to love us says God is great. We are not. We have nothing within ourselves about which to boast. So let us boast in Him and in His grace and mercy and His love for us. And so now let's move on in the time we have left to the main question of the hour as we consider how then does God love? Do you remember from your school days if you ever had an essay question on a test where you had to answer a question in a hundred words or less? Well, in a hundred words or less, you can find the answer to this question about how does God love in five short verses found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Let's go ahead and read that together. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And the Hebrew writer, well, let me back up. As, as we've already pointed out, we often apply this text to ourselves, to the love that men ought to have, 
And while it certainly does apply, it should not be limited to just that. The, um, the text is talking about the nature of love, and so it has as much to do, as much application to deity as it does to humanity. One might ask how we could apply each of these things to God. Well, the easiest and the clearest way is to look at these qualities in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. After all, He was God in flesh. All that God is, He is. All that God's love is will be found in Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus shows us the Father, doesn't He? Look how Jesus explains this fact to His disciples in John chapter 14 and verse 6. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Thomas has just asked Him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? But Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and let you've not, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And now look at John, um, the he, what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 1 verse 1, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he's appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's look now at the, quali the qualities of love that are listed in 1 Corinthians 13 as expressed in the, the New King James Version. And let's see how Christ exemplifies each one of these qualities of love. And then hopefully that will help us to understand how God loves. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, we're told love suffers long. To suffer long means what? To be, to be patient, to forbear. It literally means to be long-spirited. Is Christ long-suffering? Well, we already read this passage earlier, but let's, let's listen to it again. 2 Peter 3 and verse, thir, uh, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So yes, Christ is certainly long-suffering. Love is kind. It's a very broad word that's used here. It's the idea of general goodwill and benevolence toward others. It does good to others, as did Jesus. In Acts 10 and verse 38, we're told that Jesus, anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Jesus was compassionate. Jesus was kind. Love does not envy. Envy is an ugly trait, isn't it? It has ill will toward others because maybe of their position or because of their possessions. What happened when a rich man came to Jesus in Matthew 19 asking him, 
what good thing he should do to inherit eternal life. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20, uh, after Jesus told him to obey the commandments, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But the young man heard, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus was not envious of the man's wealth. Jesus didn't say, give your possessions to me. He told the man to sell his possessions and give the money to the poor because Jesus knew where this man's weakness lied. He was concerned for his soul and not envious for his wealth. Next, love does not parade itself. The idea of parading oneself is to be a braggart, to boast of oneself, to make a show or a spectacle of oneself. Jesus taught uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 6 and verse 1, he said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. When you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. To puff up would mean to, to blow up or to inflate, to be filled with pride. Uh, to put it bluntly, it's the belief that you're better than others. Well, Christ was better than others in every way, wasn't he? Reagan's done a really nice job on Wednesday nights in this, pa uh, this past quarter pounding home the theme of the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better. Yet, Jesus was not proud, was he? Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Love does not behave rudely. This speaks of behavior that's just simply not fitting. It's not proper. Behavior that's crude, boorish. Ever known someone who professed to be a Christian but was just downright rude? As the, as the disciples turned away those who brought little children toward Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 13, Jesus responded to their rudeness in verse 14 when he said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Love does not seek its own. The key word here may be this use of the word own, O-W-N. This would be the opposite of selfishness. We live in a time, don't we, when most seem to just want to do their own thing. Look out for number one, you be you, we hear. We see it in politics, in sports, in the workplace, in our schools. 
Christ, however, he did not seek his own. On the night of his betrayal in the garden, as he prayed to the Father to let the cup pass from him, if possible, he went on to say, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did not seek his own, and neither should we. Philippians 2 and verse 4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. One who loves is not easily excited to anger or provoked to resent others. You know, you don't have to drive too far down the road to find someone who uh, is easily provoked to anger. Road rage, they call it. We hear a lot about it in the news. People killing people because they cut them off in traffic. Maybe you heard the story recently of a of a guy up in North Dakota who, who ran over a pedestrian because he disagreed with his political views. Let's try to remember that the phrase, love is not provoked, applies to Christians behind the wheel as well. The violent anger that we find in so many today shows us just how much love is needed in this world. Look at the example of Jesus. As he faced a more evil type of treatment than you or I will ever face. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. The New International Version says uh, for this phrase, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not have a filing system where every transgression is put away and recorded for use at a later date. Have you ever been guilty of that? Well, what about that time when you whatever? No. Lucky for us, God does not hold past sins against us once he has forgiven us. Love is forgiving, as was demonstrated by our Lord as he hung on the cross. What did he say in Luke 23, 34? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. If anyone ever had a reason to keep a record of wrong, this would have been that occasion. What an example for us to follow. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Iniquity is not merely sin, it's lawlessness. It's error and disobedience to God's word. Christ never rejoiced in error. In fact, he spoke of the terrible end of those who practice lawlessness. Look at Matthew chapter 7. In verse 21, Matthew 7 in verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus loved men but he never said it makes no difference what you believe or what you practice. 
Love does not rejoice in iniquity. In fact, love, rather, rejoices in the truth. Love has something to rejoice in. It rejoices when truth triumphs. There's joy shared between the Lord, between Lord and servant when God's truth is obeyed in one's life. Jesus taught in his parable of the lost coin in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10 that all heaven rejoices in truth. It says, Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. This phrase and the next two speak of the optimistic nature of God's love, of love. Love does not give up easily. It's willing to bear up under a burden. Psalm 55 and verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. We have an obligation as Christians to bear one another's burdens. We're called upon to imitate Christ in this respect. Galatians 6 and verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love believes all things. This is not to say that love believes all things in an absolute sense. Love doesn't believe a lie, for example, nor does it believe that which would be contrary to God's will. Love, it believes God. It believes the best about other people. Why did Jesus pick such a, a ragtag group to be his disciples? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, he said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He believed in what they could become. Love hopes all things. It hopes for and desires the best for others. Hope is um, often expressed in prayer for others, as it was by Jesus in John 17. John, the 17th chapter, beginning in verse 20. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus still has this hope and desire for mankind because he loves us. Love endures all things. The thought here is of one who's not driven off course. It's the idea of one on a mission who endures until he reaches his goal. It involves the kind of determination that was demonstrated by Jesus in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then finally from our reading in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, love never fails. Love, real love, does not end. The spiritual gifts were all temporary, but love would continue. That's why in verse 13 of the same chapter, it's spoken of as the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love.
The love of Jesus for his disciples never fails. Well, in less than 100 words, Paul described for us how God loves. It's also how God wants us to love. Our love will never be perfect, as is God's. But because he loves us, he's patient with us. And because we love, we should be patient with one another. God loves you. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. So question for us this morning is, do you love him? If you do, have you shown your love for him by obeying his will? Have you been buried in baptism for the remission of your sins? If not, don't wait another minute. Jesus loves you, and he invites you to come. And if there's anything that we can assist you with this morning, please come while we stand and while we sing.